Content warning for slavery, racism, incest, and child molesting. Action! Excitement! Horror! Romance! Thrills and chills! Swords and sorcery! Rockets and ray guns! A dizzying canopy of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination! What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. of Acts, chapter 17, verse 26. Of one blood have I made all races of men. You come from afar, from the land of the stranger, the dreadful in war, the daring in danger. Before him are plain, like Eden is lying. Behind him remain, but the wasted and dying. The weak finds not Ruth, nor the patriot glory. No hope for the youth, and no rest for the hoary. O'er Ethiop's lost plains, the victor's sword flashes. Her sons are in chains, and her temples in ashes. Who will assume the bays that the hero wore? Wreaths on the tomb of days, gone evermore. Most people are aware that there are political elements to science fiction and fantasy, but a lot of people don't realize how politically charged speculative fiction has been over the years, especially in the late 19th and 20th centuries. One of the things Phil and I are learning as we delve into the history of the two genres is just how strongly various authors put their politics on display in SF and fantasy stories of the late 19th and early 20th century. We've covered a number of books already that either deal strongly with politics at the time, particularly the then burgeoning socialist movement, or that actually had some influence on the real world. It's important, then, to acknowledge that even a century ago, there weren't just white men writing science fiction and fantasy. In 1902 through 1903, a novel called Of One Blood, A Tale of the Hidden Self, was serialized in a magazine called The Colored American. Written by a black woman, Pauline Hopkins, the story used adventure story and lost kingdom tropes, among other things, to explore the themes of African Americans reconnecting with their heritage at a time when the first post-slavery generation was coming of age. Hi, welcome to What Mad Universe. I'm Adam Prosser. With me, as always, is Philip Rice. Hi. Hello. And uh, joining us, as he frequently does, is uh, a cultural historian Jess Nevins. Hi. Hi, Jess. So whenever Jess is here, you know it's going to be a good show. So <laughs> uh, today we are, as we said, talking about uh, a book uh, Phil uh, introduced to me called Of One Blood. Phil, how did you hear about this book, by the way? Um, well, uh, we were actually discussing in the um, um, episode on Rossum's Universal Robots, um, uh, we sort of put Jess on the spot about uh, whether there were any stories about slave revolts, uh, abolitionist uh, uh, viewpoints about uh, um, black right. slaves rebelling. And uh, so I, I looked, we put him on the spot, and he couldn't think of any offhand. Uh, so... Um, but I, I looked into it later and found one, uh, found a uh, science fiction encyclopedia article on uh, Martin R. Delaney, who wrote uh, uh, what's viewed as an ultimate history story in 1859 called 
Blake or the Huts of America, uh, which was about a slave revolt and possible establishment of the separatist, separatist colony of former slaves in Cuba, but the ending's lost, so um, we don't know quite how that turned out. Um, it's, it's also the uh, first novel written by a black man that was published in America, so that's interesting. But uh, um, in that article, it also mentioned this book, which uh, just brought up that it's sort of like a proto-Wakanda uh, depicted in the story, and that instantly, like, you know, a story in 1902 that deals with Afro-futurist themes really piqued my interest. So I I found it online, and it's uh, it's available. And uh, yeah, that's it. Right. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, that was a good uh, good catch uh, there, Phil. Is that is there any any interesting info in there, Jess, that uh, Phil might have skipped over? Or well, um, I, one of the things I think is fascinating about Of One Blood is how many genres. It crosses. I I first became aware of it when I was writing my uh, book on horror literature and discovered. I, I found this article on the Gothic in African American literature, and the writer talked about of one blood among other uh, among other works, and that's how I was introduced to it. Yeah, that that's the interesting thing because it's got it's got a whole supernatural. I mean. It wasn't to me particularly horrific, but certainly it deals with ghosts and and uh, psychic stuff. And then um, <laughs> and then it it has an entire other uh, back half where it deals with essentially a lost kingdom uh, in Africa. Um, and it is really interesting because it, uh, it 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 sort of switches genres, but it's all thematically coherent in terms of what it's interested in uh that that's really interesting to me um it's about a it's about a kid uh well not a kid a guy uh named uh he's a young man who's a medical student named Roel Briggs um and he um he basically uh he falls in love with a woman um who is a uh a, a black uh uh what what is it a chorus singer yeah a singer yeah and um and she uh she suffers a uh, a bit of a how how is it that she gets knocked out again, Phil? What what happens to her again? She's is it she drowns or she has an illness? No, no, that's later. I think it was just illness. I, it's sorry, it's been a few weeks now. <laughs> anyway, she's she's put into medical. Uh, it, it, she's she calls into she falls into medical uh, haplessness. Uh, what is described as death, but it may just be a coma, um, and then. Um, uh, Rule being a medical, exp uh, you know, experimenting with uh, medicine is able to bring her out of it. And uh, not just medicine, but sort of mesmerism and sort of more occult practices. Right. It's a bit, well, I mean, but they do, they they attribute the fact that he's a doctor to being part of it, right? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah, it blurs the line between, you know, his medical knowledge and his... Uh, his, his, uh, his uh, you know, psychic knowledge. Was that, was that something that, Jess, at that particular time, you know, would that be a mainstreamish thing to do? I know mesmerism was the hot, the hot trend, trend at the time. Well, there was there was a rise in the spiritualist movement, which sort of tied together uh, beliefs about the afterlife and beliefs about psychic power and beliefs about um, ghosts and that sort of thing. So 
the idea that you've got this doctor who can heal psychically as well as, and and through hypnosis or mesmerism as well as physically that that's part of it's close to mainstream thinking um more popular among women than men but yeah i'd say it's it's close to mainstream thinking if not mainstream thinking hmm yeah that's always interesting to me that you know cuz they didn't when when did people when was when was mesmer he was what late 19th century uh Gosh, eighteen. I want to say eighteen fifties, but okay. Oh no, my mistake. He he was eighteenth century. So like seventeen hundred, right? Oh, oh wow. Okay. So this had been around for a while then, basically that kind of thing. Right, but it was really in the wake of the Civil War that American that mesmerism mesmerism became. a real interest for many Americans because it was psychically they couldn't deal or emotionally rather and psychologically they couldn't deal with the unimaginable losses of the Civil War so they turned as grieving people often do to um, alternative ways alternative philosophies to comfort themselves and mesmerism and spiritualism were one of them and it lasted the spiritualist um craze i guess maybe a little too strong to a a word for it but the spiritualism movement really lasted until i think the 1910s and world war one right yeah Yeah. i i'd always heard that there was a bit of a boom in it even in the 20s uh Maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know. I think that the 20s is when you got the influx of Asian philosophy and um, things like the Theosophist Society and that sort of thing. That, that's oh, okay. that's the flavor of the spiritualism of the, of the 20s. Okay. Interesting. But yeah, I, that's that's our that old friend Madame Blavatsky, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, well, it's it, this book is interesting because it's got that aspect. It's got sort of a, a sort of a reincarnation aspect. Uh, Phil, did you? How did you read that, Phil? The the whole idea of a mysterious sort of spirit coming to them. Oh, I I wasn't sure how to interpret that honestly. No, I I took it as reincarnation. Right. Yeah, that was my interpretation. Um, but it's vague, isn't it? Because they almost treat it like some kind of outside spirit in parts. Right. right? And it, it it's almost like a it's. Uh, I wonder if it was meant to be some kind of metaphorical, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know what the phrase to use would be. Uh, spirit coming in to remind everyone of who they are, because that's a big theme of the book, as it were, uh, a spirit from the past coming back. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think I, as a metaphor, it works in terms of the, the current, the contemporary African-American philosophy of the, t- of the period. And it also works purely as entertainment for, you know, ro- reincarnation romance. Right. Yeah. Was that a, like a genre at the time? Was that something? I know there'd been something like that, but... The reincarnation romance? 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. That that was a recurring thing in for the late Victorians. Um, oh gosh, what was his name? I think uh, Arnold Edwin Arnold wrote Valdar the Oftborn, which is a pretty mediocre fantasy about this um, ancient warrior who keeps being reborn through the ages in various martial societies and always meets and loses his one true love. Um, that That's the, the one I, I'm thinking of, but I think Marie Corelli wrote a reincarnation romance or two. There were, there were a, a whole series of them. They're, they're okay. sort of of their era and haven't aged particularly well. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's interesting because you mentioned the Asian uh, philosophy coming in, and that seems like it would tie into that. Uh, but you said that came a little later. Yeah. Well, in, in America. in Oh, sorry. I just uh, realized Edwin Ar- Arnold also wrote Gulliver Jones, the Mars book. Yeah. Oh, really? I, I, okay. I, I <laughs> sorry, could just be wrong asking about, that. about the author for, for Valdar, though. Uh, let's see. Light of Asia or the Great Renunciation? George Griffith. Sounds familiar. George Griffith. It wasn't Edwin Arnold at all. George Griffith, who right, right. also wrote um, Angel of the Revolution, which we'll be doing. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Huh. Well, there you go. It all ties together. Yes. Um, anyway, but um, so yeah, Phil, uh, just uh, talk a bit. Maybe let's uh, just mention uh, Pauline Hopkins herself, the, uh, the author. Uh, Phil, did you want to uh, talk about her a bit? Um, yeah, well, I don't know much about, uh, biographical details, um, but, uh, she, she was definitely, um, uh, interested in, in, um, uh, sort of reclaiming, uh, African, uh, heritage. Mm-hmm. Uh, she stated, uh, her stories were intended to rise, uh, raise the stigma of degradation from the black race. Um, mm-hmm. she, uh, said, uh, to those who were descendants of Africans in America to become thoroughly familiar with the meager details of the Ethiopian past, um, in order to learn about, you know, counter the, uh, the racist idea that, uh, uh, you know, there was no African culture that it was, you know, uh, degraded or whatever. Um, right. and, uh, she believed history was, a, was an avenue to do this. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh. You know, obviously, this story weaves it into her fiction. Um, this was uh, reflected by some other uh, uh, black um, or African American um, uh, thinkers at the time. Said things like uh, it was important to uh, uh, you know study uh, history and learn that they're not an inferior people and they have in- achievements of their own and so forth. Um, Hopkins wrote, uh, "Fiction is of great value to any people as a preserver of manners and customs." religious, political, and social. It is a record of growth and development from generation to generation. No one will do this for us. We must ourselves develop the men and women who will faithfully betray the inmost thoughts and feelings of the Negro with all the fire and romance which lie dormant in our history and as yet unrecognized by the writers of the Anglo-Saxon race. Hmm. Yeah, I'm seeing uh, notes like in the the biographical details I dug up. It says uh, she wrote a short story called Talma Gordon, which is often considered to be the first African-American mystery story. Do you know anything about that, Jess? No, I don't. I I saw that uh, somewhere and was fascinated by it. Um, I'm obviously going to have to to investigate it. 
Um, one of the interesting things about Hopkins is that, for me, is that not only was she a firm proponent of um, African people of African descent in America reclaiming their African heritage, she was also wrote a, a small book of nonfiction uh, proposing that the uh, ancient Ethiopians were a primary influence on the Egyptians who were a primary influence on Christianity and that therefore Christianity was descended from the ancient Ethiopians. And we, we tend to think of that argument as being a late 20th century one, but that Hopkins was making it. And I don't think it was unique to her. I think, I think it was in the general thinking among African-American philosophers and, and educators of the time, but she, she actually made this book that was intended to be, it was essentially a cheap paperback that was intended to be widely distributed. And so she, right. she was sort of doing the KRS-One edutainment thing a long time before KRS-One. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I, I, we should point out at this point, of course, we are three white guys. Of course. So uh, I apologize if I don't <laughs> if I don't make any statements uh, if I, if I'm off base on this. But my understanding is actually that uh, there are people in Ethiopia who have always claimed. Uh, well, there is a tradition of Judaism in Ethiopia and seems to tie into things that are mentioned in the Bible, and that there are people in Ethiopia who have always claimed to be descended uh, from the ten lost tribes of Israel, and that. Even that they've recently done genetic testing and said, yeah, there, there's probably some basis to that. Um, if I'm not mistaken, biblically, they what they tend to say is that uh, the famous story about Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, uh, that uh, their descendants may have uh, built a civilization in, in the East Africa. Um, I could be wrong about that, so don't hold me to that. But I, I, I believe that's the legend anyway, whether it's historically based or not. Um, and that seems to be something that this book is actually playing on. Um, yes, we should uh, introduce... I mean, the thing that interested me most about this is the lost civilization aspect and uh, connections right. to sort of modern, you know, Wakanda, basically. It's uh, sort of a mis... It's like Wakanda in, in spirit. It's uh, more mystical-based uh, in their advancement than it is scientifically. Uh, right. Yeah, it's not, you mentioned initially, you said it was like Wakanda, but it's, Wakanda, the idea is, you know, what if there was a technologically advanced civilization that was hidden, uh, and well, this is I, more just... I meant uh, just in, in themes, like uh, uh, the idea of a, right. an African nation not touched by colonialism, like what, what they could have achieved if they weren't um, uh, burdened by the horrors of what happened, you know, European right. um, encroachment into the, into the continent. Yes, and that is that is very interesting because the book, um, it, it's the first, I guess, half is uh, Rule Briggs, this guy uh, falling in love with this woman who's brought out of a coma. Uh, both of them, uh, w we know right away that uh, Dianthe, the, the woman, uh, has African-American heritage, uh, but can apparently pass for white, uh, which is a big theme of the book. Uh, and then uh, we do later learn that Rule himself has African-American heritage and has been passing for white as well. 
Um, and when he brings her out of it, you know, he's like, well, how can we get married? He's offered a chance to go on a, uh, a, a an expedition to Africa. And so that's um, where it uh, Offered by his friend, Aubrey Livingston, who's fallen in love with Dianthe. Um, and right. he wants uh, ruled out of the country, basically. So there's a right. whole sort of soap opera element at this point, but it, it ties in later. Right. Yeah, that that is very pulpy in that thing. I've heard the book describe as a, quote, society novel, or uh, a novel, a, quote, problem novel, which was apparently a thing, uh, in that it dealt with relationships and how society, you know, tangled up people's relationships so that they couldn't be together or, or something like that. Uh, in this case, obviously, specifically dealing with racism. But it is very interesting and very clear uh, that the subtext is... Uh, you know, I'm I have an African American heritage, uh, but I, you don't even learn this until a good way into the book, and then it's paralleled with him literally traveling to Africa and discovering this ancient civilization <laughs> that has you know that is an ancient African civilization with all this uh, with all this uh, interesting stuff, and it does very overtly t say yes, African civilization is great and like very very it very much praises African civilization. Like, it's very strongly, yes, be proud of your heritage. Yes, African civilization is great. In fact, it's the basis for possibly all of human civilization, right? Right. Uh, yeah, so the, the um, he travels to um, uh, to Meroe, is that how you pronounce it? Um, which is an uh, uh, ancient Ethiopian city um, that's in ruins now. But So he, he's on an archaeological expedition to this this area. And um, uh, he uh, uh, finds um, the um, city of Talisar, uh, which is um, the, the city in question in this story, which is uh, surrounded by mountains and swamps to keep outsiders from getting in. Um, and uh, uh, Talisar is a um, uh, biblical, it's mentioned in the Bible uh, as being inhabited by the children of Eden. Uh, it's mentioned in Second Kings and Isaiah, but there's not much description of it or anything like that. Uh, it's some somewhere in Mesopotamia, um, but it, it's unclear on exactly what's going on there. So it's right. it's a good. Um, uh, it, it just sort of um, the the idea here that um, the uh, the in this story the people of this city uh, uh, came out of Eden and um, um, founded this city. That's the first civilization on earth 6,000 years ago, which once, you know, going in creationism. Right. And uh, J Jess, that, now that, that's something that we'd heard in fiction before, right? This whole, uh, oh, there was a lost, you know, people mentioned in the Bible or mentioned in ancient Greek or something. And, oh, we found their ancient city. Like that, that, that wasn't, that appears in the 19th century, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. There, you have lost race novels going back, I think 1830s. Um, Haggard, H. Ryder Haggard really popularized right. Africa as a location for the for the lost race, but um, I'm pretty sure that there had been authors using Africa before as 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 the site of a lost race before Haggard. Um, but of course, Hopkins was doing it as an African-American woman and was the first African-American woman to write a novel set in Africa. So she brought right. a, a very different viewpoint to things than people like Haggard did. 
Right. Yeah, I haven't and actually then, read She, but that's um, like the Lost Race is like a they're white and they're Atlantean, right? Is that it? Right. No, no in She it's well. I, hang on, if I'm not mistaken, She herself is described as white, although he says she's of Arabian descent. Uh, but then the people, she, it's just her. She rules over an African kingdom, but the Af- otherwise it's African, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and then the later books, which I haven't read, she reincarnates in Asia, I think, uh, because she dies at the end of the first book. Um, but there's, but yeah, no, she herself, and he, you know, of course, this being the time when it was written. What, when was uh, H. Ryder Haggard, uh, Jess? 85, mid-1880s. Right, okay. Um, yeah, there, there was a... Uh, he's very much at pains to say, here's a romantic love interest, it's okay, she's white. <laughs> um, even though, again, she's, she's described as being of Arabic, but I guess they counted that as white at the time. Um, whereas this is very much like, oh yeah, there's a whole lost ancient kingdom. Um, I'm trying to think if there's another, uh, another book that specifically mentions the idea of like a real civilization that's been lost. Um, you see it in the 20s and 30s all the time, of course. Uh, with like uh, Robert E. Howard and, of course, very racist version of it. But um, I, I, I feel like there's another uh, author who did ancient, uh, ancient secret kingdoms in Asia or Africa, and I'm trying to think who it is. Oh, I'm, I'm sure that goes. I mean, there's like Saint uh, or uh, Prester John. Like this goes back to medieval times. Right. That's right. Prester John. Yeah. That's actually, you're right, That's Prester John is probably the ground zero for all this stuff. Uh, Prester John, people who didn't know, there was a, it was a legend uh, of a medieval Christian who'd gone to, I believe, Asia, right? Uh, Jess, can you tell us about Prester John? Sorry. Um, it's not a medieval Christian, it actually dates further back. But yeah, it went into uh, either Asia or Africa, depending on the source. Um, basically right. somewhere far away and established a kingdom that lasts to this day of uh, Christians in this heathen territory. Right. Jess, what what era was that legend from? Do you remember? Do you know? I want to say it was turn of the millennium. Um, No, wait. No, 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 no. I'm wrong. It was uh, 13, second half of the 14th century. So 1360s, 1380s. Right. But it lasted a while. I read a, a letter uh, supposedly from uh, Prester John that was uh, widely distributed that said there were like uh, giants and satyrs and all these, you know, monsters and stuff there. So, um, you know, this fanciful kingdom. Right. And what, where was that supposed to have been located, his kingdom? Uh, like I said, either uh, Asia or Africa, depending on the period, because uh, it's basically whatever area that Europeans hadn't gone to yet. Okay. Right. And I mean, I'm realizing you can go even further back probably to Herodotus and things like that. Oh yeah. Pliny the Elder is filled with stuff like that. Uh, come to think of it like the, uh, um, oh, what, what are those? Um, there's a race in Africa that supposedly that have no heads, but their faces are on their chests. And... Right. Yeah. Yeah. The Herodotus stuff. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, but this book is very explicitly, about, you know, reclaiming your heritage. And it has, you know, the, the white people on the expedition are, you know, uh, what, what's the, the cowboy guy who's on the expedition? What's his name? Uh, 
Phil? Oh, I didn't write that down, sorry. Uh, but yeah, he, he outright uses the N-word and said, yeah. you built this? Yeah, exactly. Uh, referring to uh, Moroi, so not even like the, you know, still surviving Telesar, but uh, just the ruins of, yeah, this city. Yeah, he's, he's astounded that could this civilization, and they're like, oh yes, it definitely was built in, and, and, and it literally goes in and says, you know, well, the Bible says this, and we believe this. Again, they sort of fuzz the line between what the Bible says and what's histor historical, though, of course, you know, it's 1903. Um, but they say that, you know, there's a lot of evidence that, as we already mentioned, uh, Egypt was inspired by Ethiopia, and that since e Egypt is sort of ground zero for what people would understand as the beginning of the feudal civilization, uh, you know, that it was... Uh, doesn't he even say at one point that, um, you know, African-Americans, black people are the 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 base the original state of humanity and that everything else is a mutation or something like that. Jess, so um, like... I I don't remember if that was the. I don't recall that from this book, but that that is. I mean, it's sort of true, but yeah, it's well, it's yeah, the well, message. Of course, <laughs> it's the message. If even if it's not explicitly stated in those terms, right. Yeah, he, he ties it to the Garden of Eden, I guess, is the big thing. Like, uh, when I say he, I mean rule, but uh, Pauline Hopkins as well. Uh, they, she ties it to the, the Garden of Eden being the, the place of origin of all this stuff. Um, <clears throat> and um, But it is really interesting. Anyway, I, just, I did want to, to just go back a bit uh, to the fact that, you know, this is almost not a genre novel for a bit, and it kind of keeps bouncing around between genres and subgenres. Um, I, I was actually reminded a bit of the King in Yellow stories uh, by Robert W. Chambers, which again are like sort of society novels about people, you know, you know young people, and then, but then some of them are horror novels, <laughs> or horror yeah, stories. Yeah, the second rather. half of the book is just straight up romance stories with no supernatural elements. Right, yeah. So it's almost the reverse of this, because this one, you can argue, starts as a bit more of a society novel and then becomes way more uh, fantastical as it goes on. Um, is that something that happened a lot at that time, Jess? Um, there are certainly examples of it. Uh, Bulwer-Lytton was doing that sort of thing with his occult fantasies back in the 1840s. I, I wouldn't say it was common, but it was it was an accepted... Uh, approach to telling telling a, a a story i mean you you mix in your romance and your fantastica and you use part of the book to tell the romance story and then you use another part of the book to tell fantastica even bulwer lytton's the coming race had you know heavy romance elements and along with everything else so right yeah yeah, it's it's often. I mean, again, H. Ryder Haggard had that. There's often the the idea of, you know, going to a, a a lost kingdom and meeting your your soulmate or something that 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 seems to come up a lot. Um, oh, and even it, going it, to other planets and meeting your soulmate or the right, of course, Hollow Earth. Or so whatever. there's so having a romantic element to those stories. Obviously, I, I'm just interested in knowing like to what degree this was, um, like a science fiction or a fantastical story like this would have been just read by the mainstream, whatever, whether we're talking about upper class or lower class people, I don't know. Because it, this was published, as we said, in the Colored American magazine, which um, Hopkins had a large role in. 
And um, from what I can tell, her earlier stories weren't science fiction at all or fantasy. Is that is that right, Jess, or do you know? Yeah, I think this was her first outright Fantastica. But your your question, the, the real establishment of genres as a marketing device and as something in libraries and as something accepted by academia, this was a time period when the people who were creating the idea of higher literature and lower literature, they were still in the process of formulating this. So um, War of the Worlds was published by a respectable mainstream publisher who published didn't publish a line of science fiction. They just considered it as one more book in their collection of books that they were publishing. And you had Henry James, of all people, approach H.G. Uh, Wells to do a, a sequel to War of the Worlds. And it, wa it just wasn't a, the, the general consideration that books of science fiction or fantasy were not to be thought about by mainstream writers or readers or thinkers. That wasn't really in place. So what Hopkins was doing was there was a consciousness there was a pretty widespread consciousness at the time that fantastica science fiction fantasy horror that sort of thing were their own unique literary class of works but that didn't translate into an idea that they were bad just that they were different yeah yeah it is yeah i did i did find that very interesting and we've seen it here and there elsewhere where it's there doesn't seem to be, as you say, a very big consideration of genres. Now, this would have been, uh, you know, putting aside that this was, you know, that specifically for, as they say, the colored American. Um, but the, they, the, you know, just in general, science fiction was a genre enjoyed by everyone, right? It wasn't considered necessarily low or high brow, right? Would that be right? It was. It was genre wasn't the consideration so much at, about whether the intelligentsia could appreciate something so much as um, innate literary quality, where it's appearing, and uh, who's writing it. So you've got science fiction and the dime novels, which nobody's going to take seriously, and then you've got H.G. Wells, who is writing outright science fiction, among other fantastic genres, and everyone takes seriously. Right. So it, right, and Jules Verne, right? right. He would yeah. have been he was huge at the time, right? Yeah. So yeah, that's that's just always very interesting to me, and that's one of the things we kind of keep coming back to in this uh, podcast. We keep going back to that the liminal aspect of it, where it <laughs> it kind of can't figure out where it where it is until very later and much later in the uh, in the in the progression of the the culture. Um, I did want to mention something which I saw. Uh, there was a uh, an article about this specifically this this story by uh, a writer named Nisi Shaw. Yeah, I saw that. Um, who is yeah, which uh, it, and she makes a very interesting point, which is that um, this story hinges on a bit of a Dickensian twist near the end, uh, where uh, Rule finds out that he, Dianthe, and Aubrey are all brother and sister, basically. Um, that he can't marry while he's while he's in uh, Telesar, he discovers by a, a 
how I guess astral projection of some kind. Uh, they have this ancient yeah, wisdom. Yeah, they, they had a um, some sort of crystal um, uh, disc that could see um, other places and look through time and things like that. Right, and and it it does, and that's how he finds out that the three of them are all related to each other. Um, and uh, it's it's very by, by uh, a so, common mother and um, uh, right a, a black slave, uh, a woman, and um, mm -hmm. and it's it's what's interesting about that, and of course they all passed as as white. Uh, but what's interesting about it is just. Um, you know, in Dickens, you always see that kind of thing, and I guess that was a thing of <laughs> novels at the time, where there'd be this this twist about people finding out they were somebody's son or daughter, or they were related, or you know, it wasn't just Star Wars where they did that. But um, in this, and it's it it feels a little bit far fetched uh, on top of everything else that's happened in the novel. But uh, as as Shaw points out, which is kind of interesting, um, the incest was actually something they were very worried about. Uh, in the post during slavery and then afterwards, uh, because their uh, their heritage had been erased, nobody had any family records. There was a legitimate worry that you know if you were being you know paired up with someone, they, they might have been a relative or something. Uh, I thought that was it's kind of horrific, but that's that, that is an interesting point, uh, and it is like very relevant to the. So what would seem like a contrivance in another novel here is actually uh, an important part of the theme. Well, even without um, that, I, I've I picked up on you know the thematic um, material. I mean, it's in the name of one blood. They're all uh, related, regardless of mm -hmm. class and whatnot, because they're all part of one. I mean, the, the the idea is one human family. That yeah. Right. Yeah. Are you saying, Phil, that the title could have more than one meaning? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, that that's right. So it is very. It, you know, if you were viewing it purely as a genre story or as any story. Uh, it might seem kind of wild that it was flipping channels, as it were, between so many different fantastical ideas and, and subgenres and so on. But when you consider it as the story of African Americans discovering their heritage, both in terms of someone who didn't uh, necessarily or did or didn't acknowledge that they were uh, of African American heritage, um, <clears throat> and just the idea of, you know, an African American maybe not feeling proud of their heritage and discovering the heritage that they did have that linked them back way back to the past. Uh, thematically, it's extremely consistent and extremely focused on that idea. It's just willing to use all these genre tropes uh, to reflect that metaphorically, which is a really cool thing, I think, in this story. Um, anyway, uh, Jess, did you have any uh, further thoughts on this that we hadn't brought up yet? Well, um the incest was actually one of the recurring themes throughout the century. Uh, there was a um, literary critic who wrote, oh, God, let me see. Um, I mean, you had it back in the back in the Gothics. That was a, a recurring theme there. And right. Um, so in a way, Hopkins is sort of it. It is it, it's a contrivance, but it, as you say, it's also very much a concern for African Americans in the post um, post Civil War years. Um, 
thinking about my horror book, Alice Walker wrote a story in 73 called The Child Who Favored Daughter, which is uh, about a child molesting um, uh, sharecropper. And the the reaction to it with the, because of the incest theme in the African-American community was significantly hostile. And um, it, it's sort of like incest as far as African-American literature goes was, was the great unspoken sort of native sin for throughout the 20th century. You were saying that incest was actually a common feature of a surprising amount of 19th century books, regardless of this particular topic or not. Oh yeah. Um, there was one, one critic who, who went so far as to say that the, um, that, that sort of forbidden attraction underlies a significant proportion of the great literature of the era. Um, I, I, I can't pull up the quote right now. Um, I, it's, it's in my book, but it's I can't I can't find it. But um, yeah, there certainly certainly in terms of the literature of the century, um, Hopkins is is making use of a familiar theme. But as you, as you pointed out again, you know, for for African Americans, it had it had a special meaning in these years, and. Right. While of one blood is is makes for very interesting reading, we we have to always remind ourselves that the primary audience for the book was not us white folk, but it was for African Americans, and especially what they were calling the new Negro and the new Negro woman of of the time period. Right. Yeah. No. It's it's uh, it, it is really amazing just that there's this whole. Uh, burgeoning tradition it seemed to be quite uh, alive and well at the turn of the century of uh, you know the african-american fiction and and that the, there was the magazine that hopkins was fairly acclaimed she was a playwright before she was writing stories and you know it, it's it's you know and and at least in my case maybe she's well known in in uh, literary circles maybe she's well known in african-american literary circles uh but you know the three of us had not heard or phil and i had not heard of her i'm sure you had <laughs> uh, before this um so uh, I think we're uh, coming to the end here. Uh, Phil, did you have any uh, thoughts uh, at the end? Did you have anything else you want to add? We mentioned Afrofuturism a lot. Maybe I should define that. Uh, sure. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure this necessarily counts as Afrofuturism, but no, yeah. it's it. Like I was going to say, it follows them similar themes. Uh, Afrofuturism is a uh, genre. It was the word was coined in 1993, but it uh, goes back further than that. It's basically. Uh, uh, a subgenre uh, combining the experiences of the black diaspora with advanced technology, um, mm -hmm. and uh, it often deals with the theme of an Africa that it, that at least uh, in part was untouched by the horrors of European colonialism. Um, some right. examples included uh, uh, the music of Sun Ra, a Chicago artist from the uh, 1950s, um, who mm -hmm. used a lot of um, uh, Egyptian imagery and uh, uh, Pan-African imagery uh, mixed with right. uh, space travel and things like that, and uh, right. of course the uh, the futuristic nation of uh, African nation of Wakanda in the Black Panther comics and movie, and uh, right. modern imagery from uh, um, uh, Janelle Monet and on her album mm -hmm. cover she has one with uh, a cool one with a sort of um, a Metropolis hat. Yep. yep. Um, 
Uh, and uh, although this book uh, deals more with occult and mystical superiority of Telesar rather than the uh, technological advancement, though it, it says it was scientifically advanced, but that's like relative to other, you know, ancient right. cultures. Uh, but uh, its themes definitely fit within the tradition. The, the idea of um, uh, uh, a dignity of um, uh, black history and the, the idea that uh, if, uh, if all this... You know, if colonialism hadn't happened, they'd be much better off, which is true. Right. Yeah, no, I, it clearly, it does reach back to the past. I would say Afrofuture, I mean, to me, and who am I to say this, but my understanding of Afrofuturism is more that it, um, it, it does look towards the future, which this does, but this is more specifically talking about you know, ancient races and ancient civilizations. Oh, yeah, I, I'm not saying it's a definite example of Afrofuturism, just that it right. it's an early uh, example of the themes that would eventually emerge as that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, you know, it, that would be an important part of Afrofuturism, and you're right. And I mean, even to the point where, as we already mentioned, that there's, there's a, a doctor using, you know, semi-occult techniques, so you can almost say there's a blending of, of science and the mystical uh, so that could link into the general idea of astrofuturism. That was their idea of, uh, you know, like to to at at the time you may argue that it was advanced science and that it was like this things like their scrying pool and Telesar could be argued to be a form of science essentially uh, as they understood it at the time. Anyway, um, so I think we uh, we've we've uh, we're hitting a good time frame for this. I think so. Um, we probably have to wrap it up. Jess, was there anything you wanted to plug? I know your uh, your uh, your encyclopedia has been uh, sent off to the printers, correct? No, or, not the printers. Um, I'm I'm currently for for those who don't know, um, I am doing a second edition of my encyclopedia, Fantastic Victoriana. It's greatly expanded over the first edition, which came out about 15 years ago, and right now I'm building the index for it, which the original didn't have. And I am hoping to get the second edition up on Amazon as a as an ebook in the next three weeks or so. So that's what I'm currently working on. Yeah, great. Well, yeah, we're looking forward to that. Yeah. Th well, thank you. Yeah, this will this will be. Yeah, yeah, we're we're very excited, and and this will this show will probably be hitting right before that happens if that goes according to schedule. So because this is going to be a week or two before it actually goes up. So uh, yeah, so watch for that, guys, on Amazon. Uh, it was a tremendously valuable resource to me when I when it, parts of it were online uh, years back, um, and. Uh, Jess, always as always, it's a pleasure to have you, and it you always class up the joint when you're here. Thank so you. thank you for thanks for having <laughs> yeah, for coming great. out. It's always great having you. Thank you. Well, uh, brothers and sisters, uh, that wraps it up here for now. Uh, this seance was conducted by Phil Rice and Adam Prosser with uh, Jess Nemmons, the voice from beyond. Uh, the theme song was by Jack Furick, who's not part of the chorus of Lost Meroway, but has a lovely singing voice anyway. Uh, special thanks to the King on High, Alex Ross of Never Sleeps Network. And uh, remember your history. We'll see you again in two weeks' time. Good night, everyone. <laughs>